Namaskaram. <clears throat> um, as Shalini said at the beginning, I'm going to be um, for the next few months or so, I don't know for how long, I'm going to be just answering questions. I will get back to um, discussing each of the verses of Akshrambhai um, later, but before that I want to have time to um, post all my translations of uh, of, of um, the works of Bhagavan that I haven't yet posted online. So that to finalize those and to post them all online will take me a few months. And once I finish that, I will then resume um, writing articles on each verse of Akshram Lai and giving talks about them. So for the time being, I'll just continue doing questions and answers. Um, I start by, I get asked lots of questions on, um, in the comments on my um, YouTube channel. I don't notice from all I get notification from YouTube about some of them. So whenever I notice questions, but comments that ask questions, I make a note of them. There are too many of them for, for me to have time to answer them all, but I I make a note of them for these meetings. Um, mostly I've been answering questions that are related to the practice of self-investigation at Mabichara, because in a sense, this is the most important, this is the central topic, this is what Bhagavan teachings are all about. And though the practice of self-investigation is extremely simple, it's also extremely deep and subtle. So uh, clarifying it is very important. And people ask me questions from all sorts of different angles. Um, and to the extent to which we um these uh points can be clarified it, it helps us in the practice because because this is because this is a very deep and subtle practice it how um that is we can only practice it to the extent to which we clearly understand it and so understanding what the practice is is very very important that's why i've been i generally select questions but uh referring to this practice uh, because these are considered the most important questions um this time i'd like to start by answering a couple of uh, questions i've been asked recently um and then i'll answer whatever questions anyone wants to ask the first question i want to answer it, this is a comment that was made on my blog about a month ago it was um it was someone who had asked the question, but I had answered in the video on the, in the meeting we had on the 29th of April. Um, and on the, a comment on that, the video of that meeting, someone asked, referring to their previous question, uh, it's a longish question, so I'll read it and then I'll, I'll answer it. Uh, the question is, just one point I wasn't quite sure about and need further clarity. The last part of the question, Quotation, when I am absorbed in doing and thinking and awareness comes in naturally and I become aware that there are thoughts, almost like a light switch turning on, then I can turn my attention inward without asking the question, who am I? What I'm unsure about is, is this awareness that comes in that feels like a light bulb being switched on because it brings awareness of thoughts, whereas before there was not awareness of thinking, 
it was like I am I was so absorbed in thinking I was thinking but when this awareness uh, came in is that awareness the I am awareness or is it still not I am maybe another way of asking this is as follows we can be so engrossed in doing or or so stuck in thinking and we are not aware of that we are so engrossed it's like nothing else exists almost like we uh, become the thinking then out of nowhere an awareness comes in and we kind of wake up from being stuck in thinking and we've become aware that there is thinking aware that we are we were stuck in thinking this awareness that seems to come from nowhere and kind of jolted me out of thinking is that awareness i am or not if it isn't the i am shining through then what is it which uh, would then lead me to another question if it's not the i am awareness shining through then why does it happen and why isn't it there all the time it's a very significant change in energy if i can put it that way you're stuck in uh, thinking and unaware of anything else and then some awareness comes in from nowhere and you see that you were stuck in thinking and because that awareness has risen you are you are no longer stuck in thinking and the energy of that is like it's like a feeling of coming out of sleep a gap it feels clear and refreshing i know all these descri descriptive words for that these are, are descriptive words for that experience but it's kind of uh, a jolt uh, you do kind of come out or wake up from thinking even if it if it's only for a few seconds and then this gap and clarity then allows you to turn inwards i am just not sure what this awareness that comes in actually is if it's the i am shining through or some other phenomena uh thanks so that is the question um it's always um that is these sort of things are very difficult to put in words and when they're put in words it's um we we never when we hear such words we're never quite sure what we are understanding but i think i understand what this uh this i think it was a lady who asked this question what she was asking i think i understand what she's talking about the first point is she talks about this awareness coming in anything that comes and goes is not i am i am means our being our being is ever present and ever shining that is we always exist and we always shine as i am so anything that comes and goes anything that changes in any way is not i am it's not our being i am is that which is ever present and that is what we need to investigate so what is this awareness that she's talking about that comes obviously though she said there's not awareness there's just thoughts we we could not that is thoughts couldn't arise if we were not aware of them thoughts arise in our awareness in our mind so it's in our field of awareness so to speak but thoughts arise but as she says thoughts and other phenomena we often we we are generally so absorbed in what is happening either in what we're thinking or what is happening externally but we overlook the 
um, we, we overlooked to so so to speak the presence of ourself as the witness or the observer of all these things that we become so ab absorbed in what we are witnessing or observing that we so to speak lose ourselves in that of course we never lose ourselves completely but we overlook ourselves so i think what she's referring to the awareness she's referring to that comes is a sudden clarity of the distinction between ourselves as the witness of all these things and whatever may be happening whether thoughts or external events or external actions whatever it may be all these are things all phenomena all objects are things of which we are aware we are that which is aware of it so we are the witness and everything else is things that we are witnessing we are the observer and everything else is things that we observe but sometimes we are so absorbed in well often we are so absorbed in the observation in what whatever we are absorbing whatever we are observing but we overlook the fact that we are present there as the observer um <laughs> so I think what the awareness she's talking about is that clarity of suddenly recognizing that all that we are aware of, these are distinct from us, we are distinct from them. And as she says, this is a very good opportunity for turning within. Why in, um, in many texts they, they describe us as the, as the witness of thoughts, the, um, many people misunderstand this term witness and think that uh, we have to do an action we have to witness our thoughts that is not the point the point is why it is pointed out that we are the sakshi chaitanya the witness awareness is that we we as the witness or observer or knower are distinct from whatever we know so we first need to recognize the distinction between ourselves and everything of which we are aware. Only when we recognize that distinction clearly can we begin to investigate ourselves. So long as we we are caught up in whatever we are observing, we we, um, we, we can illustrate this with dream. In a dream, the whole dream is our mental projection. But we don't experience it as our mental projection. We don't experience it as our own creation because we experience ourselves as a part of the dream. We experience ourselves as a person in the dream. So instead of uh, recognizing that we are the creator of all this, we we experience ourselves as a creature, as part of the cre a part of our creation. So. Um, similar thing happens in day-to-day -day life with thoughts. We get so absorbed in whatever thoughts or other activities or we're involved in or whatever events are going on, but we uh, lose ourselves in it. It's like going to a cinema and uh, sitting in the cinema chair, you're watching a film and you, you're so absorbed in whatever the story is on, in the film that you almost forget the fact that you are sitting there in a chair watching all this it's almost like you're a part of it you become so emotionally involved with whatever is going on in uh, on, in, uh, on the cinema screen or if you're, you could be at home watching television you become so absorbed in what you're watching but you 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 fail to recognize that you are something distinct from that observing that so 
we, we are told that we have a witness in order to draw our attention away from everything that is known back towards ourself and Noah. Of course, the witness or Noah is not the ultimate truth of ourself because we only know things other than ourself when we know ourself as I am this person, I am this body. As Bhagavan says in verse 4 of Uludunapitu, if oneself is a form, the world and God will be likewise. So we always, ex uh, what we experience as the world is a multitude of forms. Forms means anything that is distinct from anything else. So forms includes not only material objects, but also thoughts, feelings, emotions, uh, intellectual processes, likes, dislikes, all these are forms. Um, all events and happenings are also forms because they're distinct from other things. So we are aware of all this multiplicity only when we're aware of ourselves as a part of this multiplicity, as one small part of this multiplicity. Like in a dream, we experience ourselves as a person within the dream world. And it's from the perspective of that person that we experience the dream world as if the dream world were around us. Whereas in fact, the whole, that person and the whole dream world is all within us, within our, the field of our awareness. So. I, I think what this, lady, what this lady is asking about is that moment when you become aware that you've got yourself completely absorbed in whatever is happening and you've overlooked the presence of yourself as the observer of that. So this is not the, the I am awareness, because as I say, the awareness I am is our being. It is what is ever existing, what, we, what is always shining. Um, it is the awareness I am is like the screen. But it is, it is like, um, it is, it is recognizing the distinction between subject and object, between the drik and the drisya, the, the, uh, the perceiver and everything that is perceived. So this is, recognizing this distinction is very, very necessary because until we recognize this distinction, we cannot effectively observe or investigate ourselves. That is, so long as I think I am this body and mind, and I'm completely engrossed in the activities of this body and mind, if I must to investigate myself, I will be investigating something that I'm not, because this body and mind are not what I actually am. So this, this recognition of the distinction between um, uh, the subject and object, of distinguishing the subject from the object, this is what is called Drik Drisya Viveka. Drik means the seer or witness, the knower. Drisya means what is seen or what is known, what is perceived. And Viveka means uh, distinguishing or discerning, discerning the distinction between these two. So I think this, this clarity of awareness that this lady is talking about is that sudden recognition. I am not any of these things. I am the observer of this. I'm not, I'm not the thinking, I'm, I'm that which is thinking. I, I, that is, I'm not the thoughts, I'm, I'm that which is thinking, that which is aware of these thoughts, that which is observing these thoughts, thoughts or events or whatever it may be, any phenomena. So it, this, is, it, this is a very useful clarity to recognize this clearly, because if we recognize clearly that we are not anything any phenomenon, any object, anything that we know, we are the, the witness, the observer, the, 
the knower of all these things, then we can turn our attention away from other things back towards ourselves, the observer. And that is where that is the starting point of self-investigation. So having recognized that we are not any of these phenomena, we are that which we are the knower of all these phenomena. That that recognition is the starting point of self-investigation. So having recognized that, we then need to hold on to ourselves, hold on to that that which instead of attending to that which appears, to, we need to attend to ourselves, the one to whom it appears. That's why Bhagavan sometimes um advised, but it doesn't matter whatever thought may arise, whatever phenomena may appear, to whom does it appear to me? That day, what, Bhagavan isn't suggesting that we should question to whom, to me, who am I? What he's what he implies by those by, by those words is, but we instead of allowing our attention to go out towards whatever appears, we need to turn it back towards ourselves, the one to whom it appears. And once we turn our attention back, so turning our attention away from what appears to ourself, the one to whom it appears, that is the, the turning of attention away from other things back towards ourself. Having turned our attention back towards ourself, we then need to hold on to ourself. So investigating to whom is turning our attention back to ourself. Investigating who am I is then holding on to ourself. That is, having turned our attention back to ourself, we then need to hold on to ourself. In relation to phenomena, objects, we are the subject, we are the, the knower, the seer, the witness. But this is not the ultimate truth about ourselves. The more we turn our attention back towards ourselves, the knower or observer or witness, the, this knower, observer or witness is ourself as ego. But we rise, stand, and and flourish as ego, as Bhagavan says in verse 25 of Uludanapdu, by grasping form. That means by attending to things other than ourselves. But if instead of attending to anything other than ourselves, we turn our attention back towards ourselves, this ego, the observer, the witness, begins to subside and dissolve back into its source. Its source is the ever-shining pure awareness I am. So I am is not the knower. I am is the underlying reality of the knower. I, I am is the, the light of awareness, the light of pure awareness that illumines the knower and enables it to know other things. That is, whenever we know other things, we know ourselves as I am this person, I am this body. The reality that 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 which is aware of itself as I am this person or I am this body, that is ego. The reality of ego is the pure awareness I am. In other words, ego, bereft of the adjuncts, uh, this body, this body, mind, when Bhagavan talks about ego as the awareness I am this body, what he means by body, as he clarifies in verse 5 of Bhagavad what he means by body is uh, the, the bundle of five sheaves. That is the, the physical form of the body, the, the prana or life that animates the body. In other words, all the physiological processes, the, the mind, the intellect, and the will. These five together make up the, 
what Bhagavan refers to as body, or what we, we often refer to as person. The person we are is a bundle of these five sheaves. Uh, that is the physical form of the body, the life, the mind, the intellect, and the will. So this is only so long as we take ourselves to be this body, are we aware of things other than ourselves? If by holding on to I am alone, in other words, holding on to our being alone, the adjuncts, this body will drop down, will drop off because we're no longer holding it. And what will remain is the pure I am alone. This is what Bhagavan means when he talks about ego subsiding and dissolving back into his source, its source. Or as he says in verse 25 of Uludnapadu, Tedinal Otum Pidicum. If sought, it will take flight. That is, if ego, instead of attending to other things, turns its attention back on itself to see who am I, it will thereby take flight. That means it will subside and dissolve back into its source. Its source being our being, the pure awareness I am. So um, anything that comes and goes, like this clarity she's referring to, this is not the, uh, I am, because I am is what is ever present. But it is a, it's a clarity which, if we follow that clarity, it can lead us back to ourselves. That is, who is it who is aware of these thoughts? To whom do all these thoughts appear? To me, who am I? We turn our attention away from everything else, back towards ourselves, and then hold on to ourselves. So as I say, investigating to whom means turning our attention away from other things, back towards ourselves the one to whom all these other things appear. Investigating who am I means holding on to the I, but then alone remains. In other words, holding on to ourself, holding on to our being. And by holding on to our being, we thereby subside and dissolve into our being. And when when all the adjuncts have dropped off and we we, uh, we merge wholly in, the, in our being, then I am alone remains shining. So, um, this the, the experience, the, the awareness or the clarity that this lady is talking about is a useful pointer. It is not it is not our real nature because it comes and goes, but it is it is a pointer that if we follow will lead us back to ourselves, lead us back to our being, back to I am. So that was the first question I wanted to answer. The second question is one that was asked more recently about the practice of self-investigation. Uh, it's a shorter question. Um, someone asked, this was just a few days ago, about um, two or three days ago, my understanding of self-inquiry is as follows. Whatever we think we are is not what we are. So stop thinking and just be aware. Don't doze off. Main question is how to stop thinking. Mahashi gave pointers for that through who are my inquiry. Whenever thought comes, mind or ego is coming out and attaching itself to something other than I. So don't continue the thought and turn inward using the question. So inquiry is for turning repeatedly inwards. Intellect can't understand the question, but only helps to stop the flight of thought. Am I at least close? Um, yes and no. That 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 is there is from this the way this question is answered. It's clear there's some understanding, but not a very clear understanding of what self-investigation is. 
That is, firstly, our aim in self-investigation is not to stop thinking. Thinking will stop to the extent to which we attend to ourselves. But if we try to stop thinking, our attention is on the thought, so the thinking will continue. There are, of course, special techniques uh, developed by yogis to bring about the, uh, the cessation of thoughts. That is, the aim of yoga, as Patanjali says at the beginning of the Yoga Sutra, yoga's chitta vritti nirodha. Yoga is uh, stopping or curbing the chitta vritti, the activities of the mind, in other words, the thoughts. So that is the aim of yoga. Bhagavan commented on this, that is not practical. The practical way is not to try to stop thinking, but to try to see who am I. Because if we merely stop thinking, what will happen is the mind will subside in manolaya. Manolaya means a temporary dissolution of mind. Every day when we fall asleep, we stop thinking. Why do we stop thinking when we fall asleep? Because we, we're too tired to continue sleeping. So we stop thinking and thereby subside in, in sleep. But though sleep is a state free of thoughts, it's only a temporary state and we come out of sleep again and we don't make any spiritual progress in sleep. Likewise, what the yogis, the yogis try to bring about a similar state, um, but they call uh, Nibhakalpa Samadhi. The state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, as Bhagavan clarified, is just a state of Manolaya. And to illustrate this, he used to tell the story of a yogi on the banks of the Ganga who, um, who was very adept in his yoga practices, so adept that he was frequently going into Nirvikalpa Samadhi. And because he was going into Nivakalpa, he was seen to be absorbed in meditation so much of the time, seemingly unmindful of the world or unaware of everything. Uh, the local people thought he's a great sage. So one of the local villagers became his disciple. And one, one day when he woke up from his Nivakalpa Samadhi, he was feeling thirsty. So he asked his disciple to go and fetch water from a nearby Ganga for him to drink. But before the disciple could return with the water, the yogi again went into Nivikalpa Samadhi. And this time he was so deeply absorbed in his Nivikalpa Samadhi, but he remained in that state for 300 years. Uh, nowadays, people may ask, how is it possible to remain in Nivikalpa for 300 years? The body would die before that. But no, it is a fact, actually, that yogis, if they are so absorbed in that state, but it slows down the whole metabolism of the body. There may be just one or two breaths per minute. The heart rate slows down and everything. So the body remains in a state of suspended animation or something like that. And it's possible for yogis to remain in, I mean, very adept yogis can remain in that state for a prolonged period of time without needing food or water or anything. So after 300 years, this yogi finally woke up from his Nivakalpa Samadhi. And the first thing he did was he angrily asked, where's my water? But in the meanwhile, in those 300 years, the Ganga had actually changed course. So it was now several miles away. And because the Ganga had moved, uh, taken a different course, the village had also moved away. So the, the yogi was in 
previously the yogi was just living on the outskirts of the village and after 300 years a jungle had grown up around him nobody was about and of course his disciple and all the villagers of his time had all passed away hundreds of years before what bhagavan said this story illustrates is that even the most superficial thought in the mind that is, sorry, how Bhagavan said it is, the last thought that was in his mind before he went into Nirvikalpa Samadhi was the first thought that arose in his mind after he woke up from Nirvikalpa Samadhi after 300 years. That shows that even the most superficial thought in the mind was not destroyed in spite of remaining 300 years in Nirvikalpa Samadhi. So when even the most superficial thought is not destroyed, what to say about all the vasanas that give rise to those thoughts? That is, in Manolaya, the mind is dissolved, but when it rises again, it rises with all its vasanas intact. As Bhagavan says in the eighth paragraph of Nana, um, uh, he says, um, that is one of the principal techniques of uh, yoga. What they, one of the principal techniques they use for making thought cease is uh, the practice of pranayama, breath restraint. So, what Bhagavan says in this um, in this eighth paragraph of Nana, I'll just read the first few sentences. For the mind to cease or to subside. Uh, except vicharana, self-investigation, there is there are no other adequate means. If made to cease or subside by other means, the mind, remaining for a while as if it had ceased, will rise again. Um, <clears throat> will will again rise up, or or sprout, or start outwards. And then he goes on to say, even by pranayama, that's breath restraint, the mind will will cease or subside. However, so long as prana uh, remains subsided, mind will also remain subsided. And when the prana emerges, it will also emerge, it means the mind will also emerge and wander under the sway of its vasanas. So very important thing in this sentence, he says, the mind will also emerge and wander under the sway of its vasanas. Why? Because its vasanas, however long the mind may remain subsided in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, uh, it, uh, the vasanas remain intact. Just like vasanas are not destroyed, however long we may sleep or however long we may remain in a coma, they're also not destroyed however long we re may remain in uh, Nirvikalpa Samadhi. So how this is relevant to this question is Bhagavan never recommended that we should try to stop thinking. He did say thinking will stop automatically to the extent to which our attention is focused on ourselves. But that is a byproduct. That is not our aim. When we are practicing self-investigation, we are not just we are not just trying to stop thoughts. We are trying to see who am I. In other words, we're trying to be aware of ourselves as we actually are. If we merely try to stop thoughts, it will result in manolaya. Um, so that is not our aim. Um, in fact, Patanjali in his Yoga Sutra, after saying that yoga is chitta vritti narodha, yoga is 
curbing or stopping the activity of the mind. He then says, when the activity stops, then Swarupa, our own real nature, will be known. Bhagavan says that is not the case because we can clearly see from sleep we don't know ourselves. As a, I mean, we 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 we, we don't. Um, ego is not destroyed by falling asleep. When we fall asleep, though what remains shining in sleep, as in Nirvikalpa Samadhi, is just the pure awareness I am. Because in the case of sleep or Nirvikalpa Samadhi, first the my first ego subsides. And when ego subsides, obviously all other thoughts subside along with it. And as a result of the subsidence of ego, the pure awareness I am alone remains shining. But ego is not thereby destroyed because it, it, ego it doesn't, isn't aware of itself as that pure awareness I am because it's already subsided. In order to bring about the destruction of mind, we as ego need to be, we need to experience ourselves as just the pure awareness I am. Of course, ego can never experience itself as pure awareness, but when it tries to experience itself as pure awareness by attending only to itself, it thereby subsides and um, merges back into its source, and what then sh remains shiny alone is the pure awareness I am. That is, by seeing itself as pure awareness, ego ceases to be ego and remains as pure awareness. But in the case, so that is how mano nasa, destruction of the mind is brought about. Mano, so in the case of mano layer, first ego subsides and then pure awareness shines forth. In the case of mano nasa, ego turns its attention within, experiences itself as pure awareness, and that is thereby destroyed. Because as soon as we, ego is the false awareness, I am this body. So as soon as we're aware of ourselves as just a pure awareness, I am, ego is thereby destroyed. So it's not ego that, that knows itself. By trying to know itself, ego is destroyed, and what remains shining is the pure awareness I am, but is ever knowing itself. So um, Bhagavan does not agree with Patanjali, but just by stopping thoughts, um, you'll experience Swarupa. Yes, Swarupa alone will remain shine uh, alone remains shining in any state of mano layer, but but ego is not is not thereby destroyed because ego doesn't see itself as that pure awareness. So in it's only in waking and dream that the destruction of ego can be brought about. And likewise, it's only in the waking and states of waking and dream, but the Vishaya Vasanas, the inclination to go outwards, that they can be weakened and eventually destroyed. Of course, they, Vasanas are not destroyed entirely until their root ego is destroyed. But in order to destroy ego, we first need to weaken the Vasanas to a great extent, because the Vasanas are what draw our attention outwards. Um, and so long as our attention is going outwards, ego is thereby uh, sustained and nourished. So the first point to clarify in this question is, our aim is not just to stop thinking. Um, and when the, the, the person who wrote the question said, so stop thinking and just be aware. Just be aware of what? That is, we are always aware. The problem is that we are aware of things other than ourselves. In self-investigation, our aim is to be aware of ourself alone. 
So if what he means by just be aware is be aware of ourself alone, yes, that is our aim. But uh, when we talk about awareness, people often talk about awareness with a very confused understanding of what awareness means, because awareness means different things in different contexts. Generally, when we talk about awareness, we are talking about awareness of things other than ourself. That which is aware of things other than ourself is ourself as ego. That is not the pure awareness. And so that is not real awareness. That is what is called chidabasa. Chidabasa means a semblance of awareness or a reflection or likeness of awareness. The true awareness is only pure awareness, which is aware of nothing other than its own being, I am. So pure awareness is our real nature. So our aim is not to be aware of anything other than ourselves, to be aware of ourself alone. So then he goes on to, uh, this person goes on to say, main question is how to stop thinking. How to stop thinking the means that Bhagavan gave us is don't bother about thinking, attend to yourself. If you attend to yourself, the thinking will automatically stop because thoughts can arise and stand only to the extent to which we're aware of them. If instead of attending to thoughts, if we attend to ourselves, the thoughts will automatically subside. Then he goes on to say, Maharshi gave pointers for that through who am I inquiry. Whenever thought comes, mind or ego is coming out and attaching itself to something other than I. Yes, that is correct. So don't continue with thought and turn inwards using the question. It, that is, when Bhagavan talked about the investigation, who am I, he referred to who am I as, as, as an investigation, not as a question. He didn't mean that we should question who am I. It's not wrong to question who am I, but merely questioning who am I is not the investigation. The investigation is turning our attention within. So investigating who am I means turning our attention within to see who or what we actually are. So it's not a matter of questioning, but a matter of investigating. Um, investigating means turning our attention within to see ourselves as we actually are. To see ourselves means to be aware of ourselves as we actually are. Um, so, uh, so inquiry is for uh, the person asks. So inquiry is for turning repeatedly inwards. Inquiry means the turning inwards is itself the inquiry or the investigation. It's not a matter of asking questions, but questions can be useful to the extent that they remind us to turn our attention back within. But asking the question is not turning within. It, it should, should, when the question arises in our mind, it should remind us, oh, who am I? turn my attention back towards I and ignore everything else. So it's not a matter of questioning, but investigating. And then he says, intellect can't answer the question, um, but only helps to um, stop flight of thought. That is, the intellect, intellect means that power of discernment, but that power of distinguishing one thing from another. So in a sense, we are using intellect at its most subtle level in self-investigation because we are distinguishing ourselves uh, from everything else. So this is this is 
This is um, why Bhagavan sometimes referred to it as turning the, with, he used the term mati. Mati means uh, intellect or um, he talked about amala mati, the pure mind, kunda mati, the, 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 uh, folk, the sharp mind, the pointed mind, or nun mati, the subtle intellect, sorry, mati means intellect or mind, either the nun mati, the subtle intellect. So we need to use our intellect not to ask any question or to find or to give any answer. We're using our intellect, our power of discernment, our power of distinguishing one thing from another in order to distinguish ourselves from all other things and thereby discern what we actually are. So in a sense, we are using the intellect, but the most, at its most subtle, and it, the intellect in its most subtle and refined form in order to turn our attention back within to see what we actually are. Um, uh, so, yes, so this, they, they, as I say, this person who asked this question, they have understood to some extent that is, they've understood the main point is to turn our attention inwards. Turning inwards means turning our attention back towards ourself. Everything other than ourself is outside ourself, so to speak. So turning outwards means attending to anything other than ourself. So even attending to thoughts or attending to feelings or emotion, these are all turning outwards. This is all what Bhagavan calls bahyamukham. Antamukham or ahamukham, as Bhagavan often called it, means turning our attention back towards I alone, towards ourself alone. That is what the practice is all about. So we need not be concerned about thoughts. In 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 the sixth paragraph of Nana, Bhagavan says, "Etene enangal erinum ena." That means, however many thoughts, um, however many thoughts arise, so what? Then he goes on to say, vigilantly, as soon as each thought appears, if one investigates to whom it has occurred, it will be clear to me. If one investigates who am I, that is, investigating to whom means, as I say, it means turning our attention back towards ourselves. And then he goes on to say, if one investigates who am I, that means if we continue holding on to the me to whom all the thoughts appear, the mind will return to its birthplace. Piripidum. Piripidum means the, literally means birthplace. It implies the source from which we've risen. What is the source from which we've risen? It's only our own being, I am. So the mind will return to its birthplace, its source. And since no one, and, and, and then he goes on to say, the thought that had risen will also cease. Why will the thought cease? Because we're no longer attending to it. Thoughts can't, if, if we turn our attention away from thoughts back towards ourselves. The thoughts will thereby cease because no one's thoughts cannot exist without our being aware of them. Thoughts ex, uh, seem to exist only in our awareness. So, if we instead of attending to thoughts, if we attend to ourselves, thought will automatically cease. And then he goes on to say, when one practices and practices in this manner, for the mind to stand firmly established, but. but but for the mind, the power to stand firmly established in its birthplace increases. In other words, by however many times our mind gets drawn out towards other things, we need to turn our attention back within towards ourselves. The mind will thereby subside and remain in its source until again we uh, we become negligent and allow our attention to be carried away again by 
um, vasanas, in, uh, but rise in the form of thought, um, we again need to turn our attention back towards ourselves. So as the, this question asks, yes, we, the, the practice is um, turning repeatedly inwards, however many that is, when we turn inwards, we try to hold on to that self-attentiveness. But sooner or later, we're going to lose hold of the self-attentiveness. Our attention is going to come out again. Then we need to turn it back within. So this is the practice, trying to hold on to self-attentiveness as much as possible. And whenever the attention slips outwards again, to draw it back within. This is the practice, and this is what Bhagavan means when one practices and practices in this manner. Ipidi paraka paraka. He says in Tamil, Manataku tan pirapiditil tangi nikkam shakti adhikari kindradu. By practicing and practicing, when one practices and practices in this manner, for the mind, the power to stand firmly established in its birthplace increases. That means by practicing this way, we gain the strength to remain firmly established in our birthplace. In other words, we gain the strength to avoid being carried away by babasanas that draw our attention outwards. Um, so the practice is what is most important. And what is the practice? Whenever our attention comes outwards, we turn it within. Whenever we turn it within, we try to hold on to the self-attentiveness as, as much as possible. When it comes out again, again we turn it within. This is the practice. And this has to go on throughout our life. Because the nature of the mind is to be always going outwards. So when we this practice of self-investigation is going against the nature of ego, going against the nature of mind, because the nature of ego or mind is to go outwards. But it's we, we are going against the nature of ourself as ego, but we are returning to our real nature, which is just pure being, pure satchit pure being awareness, the awareness of just being I am. That is our aim. So this practice has to go on for as long as it takes until we lose ourselves forever in our source, which is our own being, what we actually are. So I hope that answers that question adequately. Sorry, I've talked for quite a long time, but I think these are very important points to clarify. So if anyone has any questions, um, there is a question, Michael. Uh, yeah. How do we hold on to our being and still act in this world? Is it possible to be in action and still hold on to our being? When I come back to myself, I need to be still and turn totally inward. When I become aware of anything outward, such as tasks, something to do, interaction, I can feel my being somehow, but my focus goes to what I am doing. What is it like to stay connected to being and still in the dream we seem to be in. Okay. Our aim in self-investigation is to hold on to our being and thereby separate ourselves from the body and mind that we seem to be. We, we seem to be doing actions, thinking, talking, and bodily actions. These actions are actions that thinking is done by the mind. Speaking is done by the speech. Bodily actions are done by the body. Why we feel I am thinking, I am talking, I am, um, I am sitting or standing or walking or whatever, we because we identify ourselves, we identify the body, speech, and mind as ourselves. We feel I am thinking, I am talking, I am doing. 
in self-investigation, we are trying to hold on only to I am. To the extent to which we manage to hold on to I am, we are thereby separating ourselves from this person we seem to be. So the person can continue acting, the, the body, speech, and mind can continue acting while we are holding on to our being. This may not be very clear to us at first because we we are so strongly identified with this body and mind. But as we go deeper in this practice of self-investigation, we become more and more clearly aware of ourselves as something as that which is distinct from this body and mind, as we are that which knows this body and mind, but is yet distinct from them. So the more we become aware of ourselves as distinct from this body and mind, the more we will be detaching ourselves. So though the actions will go on, we will recognize more and more clearly these actions are going on by some power other than myself. That is, the actions of our body, speech, and mind are driven by two forces. Obviously, normal day-to-day -day life, we are acting under the sway of our vasanas. That is, uh, we, we, we have likes and dislikes, desires and attachments and so on, and these are impelling us to do actions. Um, I like to eat chocolate, so that prompts me to do an action, to get up to the shop, to go and buy chocolate and to eat the chocolate. So the, the, my, my getting up, my going to the shop, my buying that, that is all under the sway of that liking to eat chocolate. And that liking in its subtle form is what is called a vasana. So all our, that is the vast majority of our actions it, in normal day-to-day -day life, we are doing under the sway of our vasanas. But to the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness, we are not allowing ourselves to um, to uh, act and uh, to be swayed by our vishaya vasanas, and so we don't do actions by mind, speech, or body under their sway. Does this mean all actions of the mind, speech, and body must come to an end? No, it is not so, because our vasanas are not the only force driving our um, our actions. As Bhagavan said in the first sentence of the note he wrote for his mother, Avarabha prarabdha prakaram adakanavan angangirindu artavipan. That means, in accordance with the prarabdha of each one, he who is for that, being there there, will cause the dance. What that means is, in accordance with our prarabdha, he who is for that, that means God or Guru, in other words, Bhagavan, the one who has given us this, allotted this particular prarabdha to us, being there, there means being in each place, implying being in the heart of each one of us. Artavipan mean, literally means will cause the dance. In other words, he will make us act in whatever way is necessary for the unfoldment of our destiny. So, to use, uh, to, just to give a couple of examples, uh, a, a major example in our life, supposing it's our destiny to be a doctor. In order to be a doctor, we have to study, we have to pass exams, 
And even while working as a doctor, we need to read the medical journals, keep abreast of the latest medicines and the latest science on um, the various diseases. So all these actions are necessary in order to be a doctor. So since it's our destiny to be a doctor, we'll be made to do those actions, to study, to pass the exams, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, that are necessary to be a doctor. This applies not only to the big things in life, even to the small things in life. If it is our destiny today to eat a very tasty meal, and in order to eat that tasty meal, we need to buy the ingredients, we need to cook them and everything. So because it's our destiny to eat a tasty meal at home today, we are prompted to go to the shops to buy the materials, to uh, uh, do the cooking and everything, so that we this, this destiny is uh, to unfold. So there, there are two forces driving our actions. On the one hand, there's our own vasanas, our own likes and dislikes and so on. On the other hand, God is making us act in accordance with our destiny. Some people ask at this stage, then how do we know which actions are, uh, are make, we are actions we're doing under the sway of our will, which actions we are doing, uh, we're made to do by God? We cannot know and we need not know. All we need to understand is if we allow our attention to come outwards, away from ourselves, we thereby rise as ego and automatically we come under the sway of our Vishaya Vasanas. So we will, so long as we are attending to anything other than ourselves, we will inevitably be acting under the sway of our Vasanas. But at the same time, we are also doing whatever actions are necessary for our destiny, which God is making us do. Many of the actions we do are um, actions that we're made to do both by our vasanas and by the will of God in accordance with our destiny. For example, it's my destiny to eat a tasty meal today. I want. I also want to eat a tasty meal today. So all those actions that I need to do in order to prepare the food and to eat the tasty meal, they are, those actions are driven by God because it's my destiny to eat that tasty meal and also by my vasanas. My vasanas happen just to coincide with what is destined for me. Um, many times what we, what uh, our vasanas are not coinciding what we, what is destined to happen, but whether, it, whatever be the outcome of our actions, so long as we're acting under the sway of our vasanas, we are creating fresh karma. Um, but the actions we, to the extent that any action is driven by God in accordance with our prarabdha, that is not creating fresh karma. It's only to the extent that any action is driven by our own vasanas, but it is creating agamya. Agamya means a fresh action. The fruit of the agamya then gets stored in sanchita, which may later be experienced by us as prarabdha. But the fruit of action is, or is allotted only by Bhagavan, only by God. As he says in the first verse of Upadesha Undia, karmam payandaral kartanadanayal. Karma giving fruit is only by the ordainment of God. So the, once, once we do an action, the fruit is out of our hands. It's in his hands. And he decides what fruit is appropriate for which action and when, where, and how we should experience that fruit. That's entirely in his hands. So... Um, if we are coming back to this the, the question, if we are focusing our attention on a, on 
ourself alone, if we're trying to our best to hold on to self-attentiveness, we are thereby, to the extent to which we're holding on to self-attentiveness, we are thereby not being swayed by our vishayabhasanas. But our body, speech, and mind will act nevertheless as they are made to act by God in accordance with our destiny. So it's not that in order to follow this path, we need to sit um, like, a, like a stone with unresponsive to the world. No, we are our aim, if we are truly following this practice, we are holding on to our being and thereby separating ourselves from the body and mind. The body and mind will act as they are made to act in accordance with the will of God, in accordance that Bhagavan will make them act in whatever manner is necessary for our prarabdha, our destiny to unfold. So this may not be very clear to us at first when we are struggling to be self-attentive. It may seem, oh, if I attend to myself, then I can't attend to my work. But as we go deeper and deeper in this practice, it will become more and more clear to us that we can be holding on to self-attentiveness and the actions can be going on automatically. Well, if they, that, that is whatever actions we need to do in order for our destiny to unfold, we will unfailingly be made to do that by Bhagavan. So we need not worry about those actions. All we need to do, the only thing that need concern us is holding on to self-attentiveness. To the extent to which we hold on to self-attentiveness, we thereby separate ourselves from this body and mind, and whatever actions they do, we don't feel as I am doing this. If we if we reflect on our life, if we look look back on our life and see all the experiences we've been through, all the actions we've done, it, we can begin to recognize that actually all these things, though at the time it seemed I was doing these actions, now in retrospect we can see that all these things, everything happened as it was meant to happen. That is, we've reached this point in our life, we've got, had all these experiences, because some power was making us act in the way we act, uh, in whatever way we acted. That doesn't mean all our actions we can put the blame on. Oh, it's, Bhagavan made me do this. I committed murder, but it wasn't me. It was Bhagavan. He, um, this was the argument of Durodhana, which Bhagavan refers to in talks when he says, um, you, you, we, we, we can't put the blame on God for all our actions. So long as we have doership, so long as we are rising as ego, identifying ourselves with the body, speech and mind, we are responsible for our actions. But to the extent to which we turn within, whatever actions we need to do, he will anyway make us do, even though we are not, um, we are not uh, trying to do those actions. We are, all we are trying to do is to hold on to our being. We are thereby separating ourselves from our mind, speech and body, which will act as they would, as they would anyway be made to act in accordance with our destiny. I hope that was a clear answer to that question. Can I ask a, a follow-up question? Yeah, to that? Yes, certainly. Is that okay? Okay, I'll turn this on. Hi. Hi. Um, I guess the question is, what does it mean to attend? Because when I attend, I am using my mind at this point to, to turn my attention inward. Yes. And although I could sense or feel that connection, when I'm trying to create something, let's say a meditation for people or 
or mm. whatever that is, then I have to, in a way, focus, plan it or prepare it. And so that attention that I use for attending now seems to go somewhere else. And so, right. and so the question is, is attending something different than what I'm doing? Do um, what I'm I, I understand what you're asking. That is, this will become clear to us only to the extent to which we go deep in the practice of self-investigation. Because only when we go sufficiently deep in the practice of self-investigation do we separate ourselves from the mind, speech, and body. In this context, mind means the outward-going mind, the mind that is making decisions, that is um, engaging in outward activities. That mind can continue while a more subtle element of the mind is turning inwards. Bhagavan said about the mind, the mind turned outwards, that, that is, when our, when, when our attention is turned outwards, there, there is only one eye. When that one eye attends outwards, that is called mind or ego. When it, the same eye, the same awareness is turned back within, that is our real nature, that is pure awareness. So, as I say, when we are, when we are trying to be self-attentive, what we are doing is we are separating ourselves from the outward-facing mind and the speech and body, which exists only in the view of that outward-facing mind. So it, 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 this is a very, very subtle thing, but it is possible to turn within and to hold on to our being and to let the mind do whatever actions it is made to do in accordance with destiny. The, the mind that is acting in accordance with destiny is the outward-going mind. So it's uh, that is. This may seem contrary. How can the mind be going in two directions? How can the mind be going outwards and inwards at the same time? It may it it may be difficult for us to understand this um, uh, conceptually. But actually, if we put, if we try in practice to uh, turn our attention within more and more and more, we will begin to be aware of how this separation is happening, how by holding on to our being, we are separating ourselves from that outward-going mind. The outward-going mind can still act in accordance, as, as Bhagavan makes it act in accordance with destiny, but we are unconcerned about that because we are, our attention is turned within. Okay, I think I, I that was... Very helpful. My yeah. understanding is the mind that I'm using is the outward mind, yes. and the mind that's yes. going inward is more yes. of awareness. To the extent to which you turn your attention inwards, you are separating yourself from that outward-going mind. Mm -hmm. The outward-going mind will still act in accordance with its destiny. That is, we cannot avoid whatever actions are necessary whatever actions have to be done by our mind, speech, or body in accordance with our destiny, they will be made to act in that way. Thank you. But important that this is why Bhagavan has, what Bhagavan has, the, the task that Bhagavan has given us is extremely simple. All we need to do is to attend to ourselves. If we attend to ourselves, he has assured us everything else will be taken care of. 
because everything anyway is going to happen as it's meant to happen. Whatever actions we we uh, we we need to do in accordance with our destiny, we will be made to do whether we're attending to ourselves or attending to other things. These those things are going to go on automatically. So attending to anything other than ourselves is not at all necessary. All that we need to attend to is ourselves. That's what we first need to understand. Then once we understand that, then we come up with the, against the real difficulty, but we find that in practice we don't really want to attend to ourselves. We may want to attend to ourselves a little, but our liking to attend to other things is far greater. That is why this constant persistent practice is necessary to weaken the vishaya vasana, the inclinations to go outwards, and to strengthen the sat vasana, the inclination to hold on, the love to hold on to our own being. That is why patient and persistent practice is necessary. And as we go deeper and deeper in this practice, it becomes clearer and clearer and clearer what is that, how this process of separation is happening. Is that satisfactory? Yes, thank you very much. Right. Uh, the next question is, are the five sheets the same as Panchakosha? You mentioned yesterday, uh, uh, sorry. Are the five sheets the same as Panchakosha? You mentioned today mind, will, and intellect as the last three sheets, but mind, will, and intellect are part of Manumaya and Vijnanamaya which also include ego. Uh, the other three sheets are, of course, Anamaya, Pranamaya, and Anandamaya. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, the term five sheaths is just a translation of the Sanskrit word kosha. Kosha means a, a covering or a sheath. Um, the, the five sheaths are the Anamaya kosha, that is the physical form of the body. The Pranamaya kosha, is the life that animates the body. That is the all the physiological processes that are going on in the body, the breathing, etc. The manamaya kosha is the is the manas, the, the, that that is the, uh, another classification is there is the antakarana. Antakarana means the inner instrument. The inner instrument is said to consist of uh, four functions. The four functions are manas, buddhi, chittam, and ahankaram. So manas is the manamaya kosha. That's all the grosser functions of the mind. That includes perception, memory, thinking, feeling, emotion, and so on. They they all belong to all the grosser functions might belong to the manas or manamaya kosha. The buddhi or vijnanamaya kosha is the um is is a, a subtler aspect of the mind of, uh, that that is the it is the 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 discerning discriminating uh, reasoning um the, 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 that element of the mind that enables us to judge and discriminate and to see things clearly that is the intellect subtler than the intellect is the chittam the chittam is what is in terms of the Panchakosas is what is referred to as the Ananda Maya Kosha. Chittam means the will. It consists of all the vasanas. 
Vipassanas are the seeds that give rise to likes, dislikes, desires, attachments, and so on. So all this, this bundle of, of vasanas and the, the sprouted form of those vasanas in the form of likes, dislikes, desires, um, attachments, hopes, fears, and so on, these are all collectively called chittam or will. That is what is also referred to as the Anandamaya Kosha. Um, these these five, as Bhagavan says in um in verse five of Uludunapadu, Uru Pancha Koza Uru, the body is a form of five sheaves. Adalal Aindum Udalenum Solil Adongum. Or therefore, all five are included in the term body. That is when Bhagavan says ego is the false awareness, I am this body. He's not just talking about the gross body. He's talking about all the five sheaths. Why? Because we never experience any of the five sheaths without experiencing all of them. That is, whenever we rise as ego, we are aware of ourselves as I am this body. And including that body is the, are the other four sheaths, the pranamaya kosha, manamaya kosha, vijnanamaya kosha, and anandamaya kosha. And we can see all these things functioning. We can that, that that is obviously the body is something that we can um it is is a material thing, something gross. Even the prana is something that can be observed externally, so to speak. That is someone else can see a body and see whether it's living or dead. Um but the other ones are more subtle, the, the, the mind, the intellect, and the will. But all of these are things that we know as other than ourselves. That is the perceptions, the memories, the, the thoughts, the feelings, um, um, the, the emotions, and so on. These are all objects known by us. The workings of the intellect, the, the reasoning, judging, discriminating, discerning, seeing clearly, these, these are all things experienced by us. They're all objects. But Likewise with the will, the vasanas and the likes and dislikes, desires and so on, which sprout from them, these are all things that we actually experience. So they are, they are all objects. As I said, these three subtler shis, the manamaya kosha, vijnanamaya kosha, anandamaya kosha, refer, uh, correspond respectively to manas, buddhi and chittam. So where did the ahankara fit in here? Ahankara is not any of the five sheaths. Ahankara is that which identifies all the five sheaths as I. That is, the, the function of ahankara is said to be abhimanam. Abhimanam means that uh, attachment and identification. We attach ourselves to these five sheaths and identify these. That is, why are we attached to these five sheaths? Because we experience them as I am these five sheaths. That is what is meant by abhimanam. So ego is not any of the five sheaths, but ego, the five sheaths are all objects. They're all things known by us, whereas ego is the subject, the knower of all of them. Though it identifies itself as I am all these five sheaths, it experiences itself as um it experiences itself of the body. I am I am sitting here. It experiences of itself as the prana. I am breathing. I am uh, all the other uh, whatever physiological functions are going on in the body. It's all experienced by us as I am doing this. Um 
<clears throat> though we may not be directly aware of it, we also think, yes, I've, today I've digested my food, food well. Oh no, today I didn't, I ate too much, I didn't digest it well, I've got a tummy ache. So we're aware of the, all these uh, the, the functions of the prana. Um, uh, um, we're obviously aware of the mind, all the, the perceptions, the memories, the thoughts, the feelings, the emotions. These are all things we're aware of. They're all objects. We're aware of the intellect. We're aware of the will. So these are all objects. Um, so though we experience these as ourselves, we are actually something distinct from them. This is this is why it's ego is often referred to as the sakshi, as the witness. It is that is why why ego is pointed out as a witness because we first need to distinguish ourselves the drik from the drisya. These five sheaths are all drisya. Ego is the drik, the seer, the, the witness of all these things. But what we actually are is beyond even that. That is, we have to turn our attention back towards this ego to see what we actually are. Ego is is a is a is an adjunct mixed awareness. It is what is called chit jada granti. It is the chit element of ego is the pure awareness I am. The jada element is all the five panchakosa, the five sheaths. And the, the ego is the combination, the, the, the not formed by the entanglement of these things. Now we're aware of ourselves as I am this body. This body means this body of five sheaths. Um, that, so the that the, the this awareness I am seemingly is mixed and bound and, and conflated with the awareness I with, with, with these five sheaths. In self-investigation, we the, though we are investigating ego, we are not investigating the the jada element of ego, there are five sheaths, we're investigating only the chit element of ego. In Maharshi's gospel, Bhagavan explains very nicely in one place when he explains that ego is chit jada granti, and he says, in your investigation into the source of the ahambriti, ahambriti is another term for ego, I thought, you take the essential chit aspect of ego, therefore it will lead, this leads infallibly to the pure awareness that you actually are. So we are, what we are investigating in self-investigate when we're in Atmavichara, we're investigating not the five any of the five sheaths. We're investigating the I am that, that is the the, the 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 essential chit aspect, as Bhagavan called it, of ego. That is what we are attending to, and that is why we go thereby go beyond ego, and therefore beyond all these five sheaths. We separate ourselves from the five sheaths by holding on to I am alone. So long as we allow our attention to go outwards, we are holding on to the five sheaths. When we turn our attention within, we're holding on to our being. And because we're no longer holding the five sheaths, they slip off automatically. Because the five sheaths are not holding us. We are holding the five sheaths saying, I am this body. I'll, I'll just add one further clarification about this, about the Anandamaya Kosha. People often misunderstand what is meant by Anandamaya Kosha. They also misunderstand what is meant by Chittam. Often you will hear um, people giving lectures on uh, Vedanta. They will translate Chittam as memory. Chittam is not memory. Chittam means will. 
that is, memories are gross things. Memories belong to the manamaya kosha. The chittam it consists of vasanas. The reason there's a confusion between chittam and memory is because the vasanas come from time immemorial, as Bhagavan says in Nana, but the vasanas are not memory. Memories are just past impressions. Vasanas are not impressions, they're inclinations. So the, the chittam consists of vasanas, and the, 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 um, it is also said often that the, the, um, the anandamaya kosha consists of vasanas. But people often fail to make this connection, that the chit, what is in some contexts referred to as chittam is what in other contexts is referred to as anandamaya kosha. And there's also another point of confusion, that is, one question people often ask uh, if if it's um if sleep is a state of manolaya that is it's a state of complete dissolution of mind how does the mind or ego rise again uh, from sleep for people who who lack subtle understanding the usual explanation that is given is that in sleep Ego remains along with its vasanas in a subtle seed form. So this is this is said to be, so it is said the karana sarira remains in sleep. This is an explanation, as Bhagavan would say, to the question of questions asked by others. That is, for those who lack subtle understanding, it is said like this. Because people want to know why did he, why does ego come out? If ego wasn't present in sleep, why does it come out of sleep? I mean, how can it rise again? So they to satisfy them, they are told that ego remains in a subtle seed form along with the Karana Sarira in sleep. But this is not actually a very satisfactory answer because. In sleep, we don't experience any ego or any vasanas or any karana sarira. All we experience in sleep is our own being, I am. So according to Bhagavan, Bhagavan gave a deeper explanation. He said, in sleep, all that exists in sleep is the pure awareness, I am. He said, sleep, sleep is a state of pure awareness. Waking and dream are states of total ignorance. Contrary to the usual supposition that sleep is a state of ignorance, sleep is a state of ignorance only from the perspective of the mind or ego in waking and dream. That is, when we look back on sleep, oh, I didn't know anything. Yes, it's true, we didn't know anything, but we knew I am. We, that is, we were aware of our existence in sleep. So all that actually exists and shines in sleep is the pure awareness I am. That is why, by analyzing our experience of the uh, three states, the, the, this um, Abhastatreya Aivu, as it's called in Tamil, I think in Sanskrit, Abhastatreya, um, I've forgotten what word is used in Sanskrit for that, but uh, the analysis of the three states, why we analyze the three states, to recognize that in sleep, that, that, that is why we analyze waking and dream, to recognize that what we call waking is actually no different to dream. Uh, so the, the waking state is just another dream. And we analyze sleep to recognize that we exist in the absence of all phenomena in sleep, the absence of all the five sheets in sleep. What remains in sleep is just the pure awareness I am. So to say that the karana sarira remains in sleep is 
is an answer that will satisfy some people, but it will not satisfy those who want to go deeper. Then people say, okay, if there's no car in the surreal in sleep, then how do you explain um, that ego rises again in, in waking? The answer given by Bhagavan is it's not necessary to explain. Can you explain how ego came into existence in the first place? Whatever explanation you try and give, Bhagavan said, it's like trying to explain how, how or why the son of a barren woman was born. The son of a barren woman is a logical impossibility because if a woman is barren, that means she's got no children. If she has a son, that means she's not barren. So the son of a barren woman is like a square circle. It's a logical impossibility. So trying to explain how or why the son of a barren woman was born is is that is trying to explain how or why ego came into existence is like trying to explain how the or why the son of a barren woman came into uh, was born. Just as there's no such thing as the son, son of a barren woman, in truth, there is no such thing as ego. Now now we seem to have risen as ego, and because we have risen as ego, there seems to be all this. But if in, we seem to be ego only when we're looking away from ourselves, when we're attending to other things. If we turn our attention back to see who am I, we we never find any such thing as ego. If we go deep enough within, all we find is pure awareness. Just like if you look at a, if you see a snake, sorry, if you see a rope and mistake it to be a snake, if you want to find out, oh, what type of snake is this? Is it a cobra or a grass snake or what type of snake it is? If you investigate it, the only way you can find out what type of snake it is is by looking at it very carefully. If you look at it very carefully, what do you see? Oh, it's not a snake at all. It's just a rope. Likewise, if we look at, now we seem to be ego. But if we try to find out what this ego actually is, we will find we are just pure awareness. We never were ego. There never was any such thing as ego. So sometimes when people used to ask Bhagavan, how or why did this ego come into existence? Bhagavan used to say, first you find this ego and bring it to me. Then we can find out how it comes into existence. <laughs> if you try to find ego, you will never find any such thing. As he says in verse 25 of all you have to do, if sought, it takes flight. That is, we seem to be ego only so long as we're looking elsewhere. So long as we're not looking at ourselves, we seem to be ego. When we're looking at other things, we seem to be ego. If we look at ourselves, we don't find any such thing as ego. So ego has never actually come into existence. Since ego never came into existence in the first place, it also never actually rose from sleep. So rather than trying to, looking for an explanation, how ego, um, cease to exist when we fall asleep and comes into existence again when we wake up, let us see here and now where that ego actually exists even now. If we try to find this ego, we will never find any such thing. We will only find its underlying reality, the pure awareness that we actually are. So there's so many in 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 so many different in Vedanta, so many different levels of explanation are given to suit people at different levels of spiritual maturity. So um, not everyone is willing to grasp, but in that sleep is just in sleep, 
nothing is there, because as Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Ulunaptu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego doesn't exist in sleep, therefore nothing exists in sleep. Bhagavan clearly said there's no body in sleep. In, um, for example, in um, verse 10 of Ulunaptu, um, he, he said the body is insentient like a pot, it does not exist in sleep, but we exist in sleep, therefore the body is not I. Um, in the first paragraph of Nana, he says, Manamatra Nidrail, in sleep in which the mind does not exist. That is, towards the end of the first sentence, he says, in order to know, um, in, in order to attain that happiness, which is one's real nature, which one experiences daily in sleep, which is devoid of the mind. So there's no mind in sleep, he says there. And in verse 21 of, of Upadesha Undia, he says, in, um, in uh, 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 um, nanenum sotporul amadu nalome, what that means is this, he's referring to what he said in the previous verse, where he talks about the one infinite whole that shines forth as I am I. This is always the true import of the word I. Because of the absence of our non-existence in sleep, which is devoid of I. When he says sleep is devoid of I, he means devoid of ego. But though ego is absent in sleep, we are present there. That's what he means by namadimme nikatav, by the absence of our non-existence. That is, we continue to exist even in the absence of ego in sleep. So Bhagavan has said that in sleep there's no body, there's no mind, and there's no ego. So he couldn't be more clear in the absence. When he said there's no body, that means all the five sheaths are absent. So that is the clear view of Bhagavan. But many people are not ready to accept this because they say, oh, in such and such a text, Godapada has said like this, Shankara has said like this. The explanations given by Godapada and Shankara, like many of the explanations given by Bhagavan, were explanations given to those, to people who were not able to grasp the deeper truth. So it, inevitably, different levels of explanation have to be given. Bhagavan also gave different levels of explanation. Sometimes Bhagavan used to explain things in the, in the usual way, because he knew the people were not ready to grasp anything deeper. But for those who were ready to, who questioned more deeply and were ready to understand more deeply, he said clearly, sleep is a state devoid of ego and therefore devoid of everything. So the clear implication and what he sometimes explicitly said is that in sleep there is nothing other than our pure, the pure than satchit, the pure awareness I am, our being. Um, so I hope this answers that question I was asked about the Panchakosas, um, because this is something particularly about the Anandamaya Kosha. It's something about which there's a lot of confusion. The Anandamaya Kosha means the Chittamore will, consists of Vasanas. It's sometimes referred to as darkness, and therefore people say it's the darkness of sleep. But according to Bhagavan, sleep is not a state of darkness. Sleep is a state of pure light. 
Uh, sleep seems to be a state of darkness from the perspective of ego in the waking and dream state, because ego was absent in sleep. But though ego was absent, we were present at, at the pure, the light of pure awareness, I am. So the reason the Karana Sarira or uh, Anandamaya Kosha is called darkness is because it's the darkness of desire. But the original darkness is the darkness of ignorance. So self-ignorance, that is ego, that is avidya, ajnana, which Bhagavan said, or maya, that is what Bhagavan says is nothing but ego. The secondary, out of that primary darkness called ego, arises the secondary darkness, the darkness of desire. Because desires only arise due to lack of viveka, because we fail to recognize that happiness is our own real nature. We think we can attain happiness from external things. So that is why the Karna Sarira is sometimes described as darkness. It's a darkness of desire, which arises out of the darkness of self-ignorance, which is ego. Are there any further questions, Shalini? Yes, there are, Michael. Um, how does one generate that mumukshutva? the heart-melting love that you have spoken of, which is very apparent in Bhagwan's composition, the marital garland of letters, is the fact that we are all still seeking an indication that our love and devotion are insufficient. If our love and devotion were sufficient, it would be the end of the story. We would surrender ourselves, we would turn within and thereby surrender ourselves completely, and ego would be destroyed. So the very fact that we're still here, the very fact that we are still trying to follow Bhagavan's path means our love is still insufficient. How to increase this love? By following the path that Bhagavan has shown us, by trying more and more to turn our attention within and to surrender ourselves. As Bhagavan says in that sentence I read earlier from um, the sixth paragraph of Nana, um, um, Ipadi paraka paraka manatiku tampirapiditil tangi nikkam shakti adikadi kindradu. By practicing and practicing in this manner, this manner means by turning our attention back within and thereby surrendering ourselves, the, the power the, for the mind, the power to abide firmly in, in its source, in its birthplace, increases. That power to abide firmly in its source place is the power of love. The power, but the shakti is the power of bhakti. It is the bhakti shakti, we can say, the power of love, the power that that is the power that is necessary in order for us to be as we actually are. That we can cultivate that only by patient and persistent practice of the path that Bhagavan has shown us, namely the path of self investigation and self surrender. So long as we allow our attention to go outwards, it goes outwards under the sway of the Vishaya Vasanas. The Vishaya Vasanas, to the extent to which we allow ourselves to be swayed by Vishaya Vasanas, Vishaya Vasanas gain strength. That is, Vishaya Vasanas are just our inclination. They have no strength of their own. Whatever strength they seem to have is strength that we give them by allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. So Vasanas gain strength 
to the extent to which we allow us, ourselves to be swayed by them, and they lose their strength to the extent to which we refrain from being swayed by them. So, so long as we're allowing our attention to go outwards, we're allowing ourselves to be swayed by our bishaya vasanas. When we try more and more to turn within, and thereby to surrender ourselves, we are uh, we are allowing ourselves to be swayed by the satvasana, the inclination just to be as we actually are, the inclination to hold on to our being. And to the extent that satvasana is strengthened, the vishaya vasanas are weakened, because when we're holding on to self-attentiveness, we're thereby not allowing our mind to be taken outwards, to be pulled outwards under the sway of vishaya vasanas. So the vishaya vasanas, by this practice, vishaya vasanas lose their strength and satvasana gains strength. So the only that sattvasana is what is otherwise called bhakti. That is the power, the shakti that Bhagavan refers to when he says the, the power of the mind to remain firmly established in its source increases. That power is the power of love. And that comes only, that will that will increase only by practicing and practicing, as Bhagavan says in, explicitly in this sentence. Bhagavan often said there's no shortcut. There's no, there's no alternative to this practice. Nobody succeeds in this path without patient and persistent practice. So if we want to succeed in this path, we need to be ready to follow the path by however many times our attention goes outwards to pull it back in again and try to keep our attention fixed on ourselves. That is the practice that is required. That is the means by which we can increase this love. There is no other way. I hope that answered that question adequately. Now the next question is, many modern popular Advaita teachers like Rupert Spira and Muji seem to be pointing to the truth revealed by Ramana and advocate the direct method. Is there a fundamental difference between their teaching and that of Ramana? If so, could you please explain the difference? Uh, I have paid very little attention to their teachings. I. Muji, I know very little about. I have listened to some people have sometimes sent me talks from uh, um, asked me to listen to talks by Rupert Spera. Um, he, from what I have observed of Rupert Spera, he seems to be going further and further away from Bhagavan's teachings as the years go on. Um, then, I mean, some differences I've noticed. He, he, he. He says the world is real, for example, whereas Bhagavan insists the world is unreal. There's so many, uh, they may seem to be small differences, but they show a vast difference in outlook. So, and even when they talk about, um, I've heard some of these people, I don't know whether these two people, but often people talk about direct paths. They seem to imply but the direct path means seeing instantly that you are that. Whereas um, a path that involves practice is a, a patient and persistent practice is somehow a, a roundabout way of doing it. Oh, yes, yes. Someone has just reminds put up the, the progressive path. They, they distinguish the direct path from the progressive path. But the progressive, that is Bhagavan's path, 
self-investigation is the direct path. But why is it the direct path? Because what what is our aim? To know what we actually are. The means to know what we actually are is to investigate what we actually are. So it's the direct path. But we need to practice this path. We need to make progress in this path. So when they talk about the progressive path, they, 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 they are trying to, the implication, and this is something Spira talks about, he seems to be implying that this direct path is a, somehow an instantaneous path, whereas the progressive path is a slow, roundabout way of going about it. But the truth is, the direct path is progressive. That is, we have to go, we, we, when, we, when we start off following this path, our vasanas, uh, our vishaya vasanas are still very strong. So we keep on going outwards. So we need to patiently and persistently practice to, in order to weaken the vishaya vasanas and strengthen the, uh, the, um, the sat vasana. So this, this is progressive. It is a progressive path. But that is, we progress along the direct path. So the very fact that they make this distinction shows they haven't really understood what the what this direct path is. This direct path means the direct path is nothing but attending to ourself. But in order to attend to ourself, in order to hold on to self-attentiveness uninterruptedly, takes any number, I mean, we don't know how long it takes us, whether it takes us years or lifetimes or whatever, it depends on how much we've practiced in the past. Of course, if we practiced a lot in the path, we'll be a past, we'll be a lot, we'll have progressed a lot further and we'll be closer to our goal. But we all have to follow this path. We all have to progress along this path. As we, as Bhagavan says, by practicing and practicing in this manner, the strength of the mind to remain in its source increases. That increase in strength is the progress we are making along this path. So to distinguish the direct path from the progressive path indicates that these people really don't understand what is involved in following this path. It's not just, as some people imagine, you just have to be told, you are the self, you are consciousness, you are awareness, and you just have to see that, and then you're liberated. It's, it's, not, it's not simple like that. We, that is the nature of ego, is to be always going outwards to grasp things other than ourselves. We have to undo that, um, that ego nature. We have to give up the ego nature by holding on to our being, by holding on to our real nature. So to separate ourselves from this ego nature obviously takes a huge amount of practice, years or even lifetimes of practice. Whereas these people make it sound like it's some sort of thing that you can, you just need to have it, uh, you just need to see it clearly. And it, yes, we do need to see it clearly, but not conceptually. Seeing clearly means seeing deep within ourselves. And can we look deep within ourselves? Most of us are not, uh, are not, uh, are not capable of looking within ourselves deep enough. We can start to look within ourselves, but only by by years or lifetimes of practice, we can we can gain the skill to go sufficiently deep within. We can gain the strength to remain firmly established in our birthplace, as Bhagavan says. So we need to progress along the direct path. Um, so really, the, these people like um, 
Muji, uh, Spira, and so many of these other um, uh, neo-Advaita type teachings, they are all trying to, um, they, they're trying to sell a product. And the product, in order to sell a product, you have to make it sound very attractive. So if you tell someone you have to follow this path, for, you may have to follow this path for lifetimes until you're ready, finally ready to surrender yourself fully. Um, that's not going to sell very well in the marketplace. If you want to sell a product in the marketplace, it's got to, you've got to show that you can produce quick results. So they, they, they trivialize uh, what is the most serious of all paths? This is this path we need, as Bhagavan says in verse 26 of Uludanaptu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. I'll say it in Tamil. If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, know that investigating what this is, that means what this ego is, is giving up everything. So we need to be, this is not just a, a um, this is not a trivial path. This is a very, very serious path. We need to be ready to give up everything. We need to be ready to give up ourselves, to surrender ourselves completely. So these people who try to popularize this path are thereby trivializing it. They may do, it may be a very good business for them. They may make a lot of money out of it and get successful and get name and fame and everything. But this is not true spirituality. True spirituality is a lonesome path of turning within again and again and again. And our mind will inevitably go out again and again and again. That's the very nature of the mind. We just have to persevere in this practice. If we persevere, success is assured. It may take time, it may take years, it may take lifetimes, doesn't matter. We need to, if, if you're trying to go from A to B, how long it takes you to get from A to B depends how far, how far A is from B. So it depends where you start from. So most of us are starting from, um, from a state where we are still have strong Vishaya Vasanas. Because we are starting from this state, we have to persevere in the practice for as long as it takes until the Vishaya Vasanas are, are weakened sufficiently and the Sat Vasanas strengthened sufficiently for us finally to be willing to surrender ourselves completely and thereby to merge back within. Then only will we be able to turn our attention fully within and to merge back into our source. So anyone who tries to give you the impression that this path is this path is a path that you can but you can I mean anyone who tries to trivialize this in any way is not teaching what Bhagavan is teaching. Bhagavan never trivialized this path. Bhagavan said this path is the easiest of all paths. But what he meant by that is he didn't mean by that that we 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 can dispense with practice, we can just see what we actually are. No, it's the easiest because we are dealing with the we're cutting up the very root. Any other path is trying to go a roundabout way. Whereas this path is the path of cutting up the very root. That is, as he says in, in verse two of Amma Vidya, the um 
the one thought on which all thoughts are strung is the thought, I am this body. If one goes within investigating who am I, from where did this thought, I am this body arise, there the mind will subside, our real nature will shine forth. But So it is an easy path, but in order to go deep within, takes as much practice as is required. We can't say how we can't say whether it's years or lifetimes of practice, but it takes practice. It takes patient and persistent some practice. How much? As much as is required to finally make us willing to let go of everything else and to merge back in our source. So it is the easiest of all paths. That doesn't mean that we can that there's a shortcut round the need for practice. There's no shortcut. This is the direct path. There's no shorter cut than this. But to follow this path, we need patient and persistent practice. Because only by patient and persistent practice will we gain the strength that is necessary to remain firmly established in our birthplace, the source from which we had risen. I hope that, as I say, I don't know a lot about uh, Spiro's teachings or uh, Muji's teaching, but whenever I'm People ask me to listen to things. I find these people are trivializing this path. It, this is not a trivial path. This is the ultimate path. Um, another question is, um, could you explain briefly the importance of the path of Sri Ramana, the book by Sadhu Om, new edition? What is the difference between the previous edition and the latest? In the latest edition, that is, <clears throat> Sadhuam never wrote, sat down to write a book. Um, he, people used to come to him and ask questions. And some friends collected the questions, the, the answers that he gave to questions, either by noting them down or many questions he was asked by letters. In those days, they, they didn't have emails and things. It was all handwritten letters. So he used to reply to people's letters by um by um by, by writing replies so um one friend in particular one dr santanam collected all these replies given by swami by sadhuam and that is he copied letters that people showed him that people had got letters from him they showed dr santanam he would copy all the letters he noted down many explanations he heard from sadhuam and he gave a big bundle of notes to Sadhuam and asked him to form them into a book. Sadhuam first formed what was the original path of Sri Ramana, which was just the, the main part of the book, the first eight chapters. Um, and um, but Dr. Santanam wanted us, he said, You've there's so many other explanations you've given um, about God and world and about bhakti and about karma and all these things. So all those notes or everything that Sadhuam hadn't included in the first book, he kept Dr. Santanam kept aside for a second part. And so Dr. Santanam published the first edition in Tamil. And though the name of the book was Sri Ramla Vari, which means the path of Sri Ramla. He added there 
Mudelbach on the first part because he had a, his in, his determination was to get Sadhuam to write more. So he later got Sadhuam to compile the second part, um, which Sadhuam always said it's not actually the second part; it's just a supplement, which is why he later changed it from being. Um, in the second part, he changed it to being Anubandam, a supplement. So the main part of the book is the first eight chapters. But then, uh, late in subsequent editions, Sadhuam gave so many uh, further explanations. So when I was there in the 1970s and 80s, I noted down so many explanations additional explanations that Sadhuam had given and suggested that he had them. So many things were added. The last edition in Sadhuam's lifetime was the 1985 edition, Tamil edition. So many things were added in that edition which were not in previous editions. So they had never before been translated into English. So many of most of the parts that are newly added have been included in this new English translation. Also, this Sadhuam's Tamil, uh, Tamil prose, is relatively easy compared to, for example, Murugana's Tamil prose, which is really tough. But it, because he's, this is a very deep and subtle subject, it is not at all easy translating this work from Tamil into English, because it's, it's a very deep and subtle subject that he's writing about. And um, really, if I were, I, I have never translated it fully myself because I've attempted to at times, but I find I can sometimes spend days together to translate just one paragraph or even a whole day or two days to translate one sentence because it's so difficult to express adequately in English how clearly and beautifully it's expressed in Tamil. So this new English edition is an improved translation. It's not a, it's by no means a perfect translation, but it's, it's closer to the original than the earlier translation. There's still more room for improvement. Maybe in future people will come who will be able to improve it, but it's, it's a big improvement on the previous edition, both in terms of the translation and it's a more complete edition. It, it contains all or most of the portions that were later uh, uh, added, but were not in the earlier editions. And as to the importance of uh, the book itself, I mean, apart from the edition, a question of the difference between different editions, it is undoubtedly the best book for anyone who truly wants to understand, get a deep understanding of Bhagavan's teachings and put it into practice. That's why the first part is mainly focused on the practice of self-investigation, and the second part is supplementary. Sadhuam once told me, the first part is about attending to ourself and why it is necessary to attend only to ourself. The second part is why we need not attend to anything else. So that, that second part is just a supplement. That's why the now it's uh, well in accordance with how Sadhuam did it in the um, 1985 edition, or how he intended to do it, it was even in the 1985 edition, but he, he had told me that his intention was that the first part should be considered as the main part, the second part should be considered as a supplement. That's why in the, I think, 2013 edition of the Tamil, we made that change. 
because that was what that was in accordance with Sadron's wishes. So it is. It's a very, very well. Uh, even though, as I say, that English translation is far from perfect. It gives. It's. You can learn more from that book than from almost any other book on Bhagavan's teachings. And what you will learn from that book is practical. That is, it's all Bhagavan's teachings are all about practice, and Sadhuam focused on the practice. Uh, Michael, uh, there are a couple of questions, um, but we're also uh, kind of running out of time. Uh, let, let's continue. Let, 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 I'll try and answer those questions um, quickly if I can. <laughs> I'm not very good yeah. at quickly yes, answering I, questions. Yes, because they're fairly uh, focused questions, and I think one could just answer them very, very quickly. Okay. Try and finish in about 10 minutes or so. Okay. Um, the, so one is, uh, it's, it's basically that um, in the world and working daily, you see friends learning new things uh, to, uh, to develop and progress in their careers. And how is it possible to not worry about one's career and of, of being left behind? Having this attitude, you're looked at by people around you as someone who is without any ambitions and not taking one's career seriously. So what should one do? How can we convince ourselves that the only worthy aim in life is to always attend to I, and there is nothing higher or greater than this to do? By repeatedly reading and thinking about Bhagavan's teachings, that will help to convince us. But what will convince us more than anything else is by putting this into practice. And the practice is to separate ourselves from this person um, that we now seem to be. So who is it who lacks ambition? It's this person that we now take ourselves to be. So people may ridicule this person or feel pity for this person, or um, they may tell this person, you should, uh, you should have more ambition, you should try harder or whatever. They, people may, may uh, um, look down on this person, but that shouldn't concern us because what is our aim? Our aim is to separate ourselves from this person. So long as we feel I am this person, we may feel offended if other people uh, tell us that we're useless, that we're wasting our life, and that we're not, um, we're not. Um, <clears throat> sometimes even our own family members can tell us, oh, why aren't you earning more? Why aren't you trying harder? Why aren't you trying to improve our life or whatever? We shouldn't be concerned about that because not as Bhagavan says, whatever is to happen is to, is going to happen. Whatever is not to happen is not going to happen. In the note he wrote for his mother, in the second, third, and fourth sentences, he says, "Endrum naduvadu, enmuichikanum naduvadu." That means whatever is never to happen will not happen in spite of any amount of effort. Nadapatu entadeseinum niladu. What is to happen will not stop in spite of any amount of obstruction. Iduveitinum. This is certain. Ahalin monomayirke nandru. Therefore, being silent is best. That is, whatever action this mind, speech, and body need to do will be made to do, as he says in the first sentence. That is, whatever they need to do in accordance with our destiny. 
Anything else we try and do is not going. We can, if, if um, our relatives tell us we should try and earn more money, we can try. But if it's not our destiny, we're not going to earn. Any, we're not going to earn a single paisa more than a single penny or cent more than what we are destined to experience. What we are destined to earn. And we can't, also by following this path, we're not going to lose us. What is what is for us is not going to go by us. That is what is destined. It's going to come to us. What is not destined is not going to come to us. So all these people who are who have worldly ambitions and are seeking worldly uh, aims and ambitions, they do not know. That is, they are the foolish ones. They are wasting their life chasing shadows, chasing ephemeral things. So the more we we let our mind um, soak in Bhagavan's teachings by constantly reading his teachings, thinking about his teachings, and most important, trying to put them into practice, but the less we will be um, inclined to, um, to achieve any world, to go after any worldly achievements. But as Bhagavan said, the word Siddhi, in in Sanskrit and Tamil means achie accomplishment, achievement. Um, it also means um, uh, it also is used in a special sense to mean um, uh, magical powers, so supernatural powers, occult powers, or whatever. But even if we take it in the simplest meaning of um, the uh, um, accomplishments, achievements, what Bhagavan says in Uladunapadu, in um, in verse um, 30, 35 of Uludhana Bhagavan says very nicely, being and knowing poral, poral means the substance, the one thing that really exists, being and knowing uh, poral, which exists as accomplished, as accomplished means that it's always accomplished, um, is accomplishment. That's the true city. So knowing and being what we actually are, that alone is the true Siddhi, according to Bhagavan. All other Siddhis, all other accomplishments are just accomplishments achieved in a dream. That is, whatever we may achieve in this world, we may become the richest person in the world, we may become the most powerful person in the world, the most famous person in the world, we may have all sorts of pleasures and everything, they're just accomplishments in a dream. In the dream, if you win the lottery, it may, be, may feel very nice for a few minutes in the dream. When you wake up, you will know all your winning the lottery um, is nothing because it's, it's not real. It's all So whatever we may achieve in this life is worthless. The only worthy thing to achieve in this life is the love to turn within. And we can achieve that love only by turning within, only by trying to turn within more and more and more. So he goes on to say, all other accomplishments are just accomplishments achieved in dream. If one wakes up leaving sleep, are they real? Will those who, standing in the real state, have left unreality be deluded? No. So cities of any kind, whether the supernatural kind of cities or even the ordinary cities that people are, cities in the sense of the worldly achievements, they're all nothing but achievements achieved in a dream. They're all worthless. So we need to, if we constantly dwelling on these things, then our might, then we will lose the inclination to go outwards and seek, um, seek anything. Because anything anyway, 
nothing is going to happen that is not already destined to happen. And what is destined to happen is is going to happen anyway, however much we try to avoid it. So we can't, it's useless trying, seeking worldly achievements is useless. I hope that adequately answered that question. But like with everything, practice, practice, practice is the most important thing. Um, next question. Uh, you mentioned that Bhagwan allotted our prarabdha karma and our destiny. To me, this seems that even though I am the self, there seems to be more powerful and more and more knowledgeable beings than I am as the self. When you say you are the self, what do you mean? You, there's no such thing as the self. There is only yourself. You are always yourself. But now you mistake yourself to be a person. And it is only as a person that you, that you have a destiny. So, but so long as we rise as ego, there, we thereby identify ourselves as a person and experience a prarabdha, a destiny. Um, that destiny is allotted by Bhagavan. But who is Bhagavan? Bhagavan is our, he's not something other than ourselves. He's our own reality. What we actually are, that is Bhagavan. So how does Bhagavan allot our prarabdha? Not by doing anything, but just by being as he is. In the 15th paragraph of um, Nana, Bhagavan uses a very nice term. He talks about the, he says, all the panchakritiyas, panchakritiyas means the five divine functions. That's creation, sustenance, destruction, uh, shishti, siti, samhara, that is, uh, tirodhana, that means veiling, uh, and anugraha, grace. All these five functions, how do they happen? They happen by the mere special nature of the presence of God. That means God doesn't do anything, but just by being as he is, everything happens as it's meant to happen. Why? Because his nature is infinite love. Bhagavan is infinite love. So just by being as he is, everything automatically happens as it is meant to happen. So he he allots the uh, destiny not by doing anything, but just by being the infinite ocean of love that he actually is. So the destiny that is allotted to us is the fruit of our past karmas, but those fruit that will be most conducive to our spiritual progress in this life. So whatever happens in the, in this life of ours is his will in the sense that it has been allotted by him for our benefit. So we should be willing to surrender our will to his will, to accept whatever is to happen, knowing that it is what is best for us. And all our only responsibility is to try more and more and more to turn within. I hope that adequately answers that question. I think that's, that's very good. Um, the next question is, what is the main problem with indulging our desires, like the desire to eat some tasty food? Is the fact that we will thereby be generating fresh karma? Is that the problem? I feel that it is not a major problem because our storehouse of karma is so huge that we will anyway never be able to exhaust it. So what is the main problem with desire? The main problem is the more we allow ourselves to be swayed by our desires, 
the stronger those desires become, indulging desires is like pouring petrol on a fire. You cannot extinguish the fire of desire by indulging it. So we can overcome the, those desires in their seed form of the Shayabhasanas. We can overcome them in their, in their seed form only by not allowing ourselves to be swayed by them. So, but yes, as you say, we, we, we need not worry about um, generating fresh karma, because uh, fresh fruit of karma, because there's so much fruit already waiting to be experienced by us. That is not the problem. What causes us to do those actions is our, is our vasanas in the form of likes, dislikes, desires, and so on. So if we allow ourselves to be swayed by our desire, desires, we are thereby strengthening those desires, and we can never escape from their clutches. So the, the reason we need to turn within and to hold on to our own being is to, in order to escape the clutches of the vasanas that we ourselves have generated. The vasanas are just those desires in their seed form. So it, that's why Bhagavan says in the second verse of Upadesha India, um, uh, that means the fruit of action passing away. That is, when we, when we experience the fruit of any action, that, that is finished. If you eat an apple, the apple is finished. You can't eat it a second time. So by experiencing the fruit of action, you're free of that fruit. But what remains is the bhittu, the seed. Those seed means the vasanas. In the Malayalam version, he even says explicitly, vasanakara vittai, the seeds in the form of vasanas. And they are what cause us to fall in the great ocean of action. So, it, it's it's not the it's not the action or the fruit of action that we have to worry about. It's the sea. It's what impels us to fall in this ocean of action, and that is the vasana. So, if we want to get out of this ocean, this vast ocean of action of of doing action and experiencing the fruit endlessly, for, as we have been doing for countless lives before, the only we, we, it is necessary to. Uh, to scorch the seeds that give that impel us to do these actions. We scorch these seeds by holding on to our own being. The more we attend to ourselves, the less we are there by being swayed by our Vishaya Vasanas. The weaker the Vishaya Vasanas become, the stronger the Sat Vasana becomes. So we need not be worried about karma. What we need to be um, to be concerned about is rising as ego and thereby coming under the sway of Bibishaya Vasanas that impel us to do the karma. The karma and its fruit, these are all secondary things. The primary problem is ego. Secondary problem is the Vishaya Vasanas. So long as the Vishaya Vasanas are strong, we will continue rising as ego and doing endless karmas. So in order to put an end to ego, we need to we need to surrender ourselves completely by turning within. But we won't turn within so long as our Vishaya Vasanas are strong. So we need to, by patient and persistent practice of self-investigation and self-surrender, we need to weaken the Vishaya Vasanas and strengthen the Sat Vasana. And this is the only way in which we can escape this, um, 
escape this samsara, this great ocean of action. Um, just going to wrap up with uh, two very quick questions, and one has already been answered, but you could just repeat that in two, three sentences. Uh, um, one is, which edition of Happiness and the Art of Being does Michael recommend, or is his blog or website the best reference? Happiness and the Art of Being, that's really, a, there, it was first published in 2006 or seven, I think. And in 2012, there was a very slightly revised edition, but the revisions were mainly in, I, am, I was able to uh, get fonts to use diacritic characters to be more precise in the transliteration. So other than that, there's very little change and um, there almost no change between the two editions. Um, yes, I mean, I wrote that book, now it's nearly 20 years ago. Well, it was written over a period of years. It was mostly based on answers that are given to questions that people ask me. I sort of collated them together into to the book. Um, but that was in the, the past 20 years, obviously, my understanding has um, has developed and deepened. And I mean, it happens to anyone who is following this path. We, we gradually, our understanding gets refined. So... Um, my later writing, the writings you find in, in the more recent years in my blog, will be will be more refined versions of the similar explanations that I gave in um, in Happiness and the Art of Being. But now I give the same explanations in a more refined way, and maybe some of the explanations I've I've ditched because they're, as Bhagavan said, many explanations are explanations given to the questions of others. Sometimes. Um, we have to give diluted explanations. So, um, as I as I grow older, I become less and less patient with the more diluted explanation, and I think, why not just give it as it is? So, I tend to give more more deeper and direct explanations now than. Um, I, when I, I mean, in the past, I used to give such explanations, but when people weren't ready to grasp them, I was more ready to explain about um like why it's, it's said in scriptures but uh, uh the car and the sarira remains in sleep these sort of things there, there may be some explanations of that type in happiness and the art of being which nowadays i i generally i avoid because i i don't think it really helps oh, the last you. question which uh I think you have already answered, but perhaps you know, could just do it very, very briefly. Uh, could you please explain why it is misleading that some Advaitic teachers say that no sadhana is necessary? <laughs> it is. It is. Um, it is misleading for the simple reason that sadhana is absolutely necessary. Sadhana means, in the sense of practice, we need to. We cannot go deep within without constant practice as Bhagavan so clearly indicates in so many ways. I mean, that sentence I talked about earlier in the sixth paragraph where Bhagavan says, Ipiti paraka paraka um, manatiku uh, tan pirupiditil tangi nikkam shakti adhikari kindradu by practicing and practicing. He repeats the word practice, paraka paraka. That means practicing and practicing. That means the practice has to go on persistently, constantly. And only by that practice will the strength of the mind to abide in it, remain in its source, 
increase. So practice is absolutely necessary. Any, uh, any Vedantin who says practice is not necessary has not understood Vedanta at all. Many people give nice lectures on the philosophy of Vedanta, but they completely miss what is the practical implication of all of this. Vedanta is an extremely practical philosophy, and Bhagavan came to, to highlight what is, the, what is the practical implication of all of Vedanta. So Bhagavan's teachings are all about practice. So anyone who says practice is not necessary, they are, it's diametrically opposed to Bhagavan's teachings, because Bhagavan's teachings are all about practice. Any teaching that said practice is not necessary is impractical teachings, quite frankly. So do we want practical teachings or impractical teachings? If we really want to know and to be what we actually are, we want practical teaching. How can we know and be what we actually are? Only by investigating ourselves and thereby surrendering ourselves. That is Bhagavan's teachings. That is the practical way. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Aranachala Ramanaya.